Could Trevor Bauer be the top fantasy pitcher in 2021? I'll ask Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic and Wise Guy Baseball about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, February 2nd. It's show number one of the 2021 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Tuesday tout edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with the wise guy of fantasy baseball. It's Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic discussing draft strategy, pitchers, hitters, and relievers, how you can get a free e-copy of his 2021 Wise Guy Baseball Annual, how he won a nightclub wet t-shirt contest, how Trevor Bauer could become his number one starting pitcher for 2021, and his boons and banes. It's another big Tuesday tout edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Is the season going to start when we thought it was going to start? we got to talk some baseball. I don't know if you heard about this, but Major League Baseball's owners recently made a proposal to the Players Union with three main ideas. First, the season would be delayed a month, with spring training starting at the end of March and opening day at the end of April, and the playoffs in November. Right now, of course, spring training is scheduled to open in mid-February, with opening day on April 1st. The season would run 154 games instead of 162, but Major League Baseball is offering full pay, 162 games for players. And the playoffs would again be expanded, as they were in the short season last year, but to 14 teams rather than 16. Now the players' union seems unlikely to agree to this. They already rejected a proposal to add playoff rounds in exchange for adding the DH to the National League, and I don't expect the union to go for this idea either, and they probably shouldn't. There's nothing in it for them. In exchange for giving the players guaranteed full pay for 2021, which they already have, the owners offer benefits just the owners. First, they're hoping that the vaccine rollout will let more fans attend games, and starting the games later means more games after the vaccine is out. Adding playoff rounds is just a windfall for the owners because players don't get paid for playoff games. They don't get any of the added TV money, and their playoff bonuses use a formula based on gate receipts that makes the bonuses true bargains for the owners on a pay-per-game basis, especially for the star players. And the players don't even get service time credit for playing in playoff games either, which affects their future pay. And if you don't believe me, ask Chris Bryant or anybody else who got called up partway through April or into May to cheat him out of the year of service time. All of which is to say I don't expect the Players Association are going to go along with this. And that is good news for us as baseball fans and fantasy managers, since it means, for now anyway, that we can look forward to have opening day on opening day. And I can't wait. Something else I can't wait for is the first inning of our opening day here at Baseball HQ Radio. It's part one of our feature expert interview with the wise guy of fantasy baseball, Gene McCaffrey of The Athletic. Gene McCaffrey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's a tradition that Gene McCaffrey opens our Baseball HQ Radio season. How are you? I am great, Patrick. Thank you for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. And I understand you're just back from Mexico, had a nice time on the beach. I am just back from Mexico, had a nice time editing my 
Wise Guy Baseball 2021, which I'm not publishing, but nevertheless, I wrote, and a lot of the material will wind up in The Athletic, so that's how I do my research, so I didn't change that. And uh, just briefly, we don't want to get into it, but uh, how was the whole, you know, flying, COVID, all that kind of stuff as far as getting to and from from the West Coast of Mexico? It was a breeze. The safety protocols were tight and uh, everyone was conscientious about them. The hotels were really, you know, they were only about a third or a quarter even full, but they, uh, but they, they were very accommodating. They were very safety conscious. It was, and boy, did I need a vacation. So it was lovely. (laughs) Well, before we get started talking about fantasy baseball, I'm curious what you thought about the Nolan Arenado deal was announced a couple of days ago. Apparently he's off to St. Louis and, uh, Part of the deal, uh, according to some of the news reports, and none of this has really been confirmed yet, but the the story that I heard was that uh, Colorado's actually paying St. Louis something like $50 million to offset Arenado's uh, remaining about $200 million in salary. Uh, What's your reaction, first of all, to the idea of Arenado leaving uh, Coors Field for a tougher hitting environment in St. Louis? Well, I definitely have knocked him down. I mean, he was high on my list figuring that this year, well, he's going to go in the second round, even as a Rocky. And that put him high on my list as a rebound since he played hurt last year. I was giving him a mulligan. Um, I think he'll think he'll still be good in St. Louis, but I've definitely knocked him down a peg. And I currently have him, you know, he was pretty much, to me, he was about tied with Machado for second. And now I've got him as a pretty solid number six at third base. And would consider him say in the maybe in the fourth round something like that and the package the Rockies got back I understand includes Austin Gomber is the only guy I've really heard of I'm not a big prospect guy but have you ever heard of Lucan Baker and Helron Don John Torres or Jake Woodford Woodford sounds familiar no no I don't know anything about them I I, I will do my due diligence on them when I uh, once the deal is finalized which it seems to me there's a lot of hoops that people have to jump through. There's a lot of money involved and a lot of contractual agreements and options and opt-outs and that sort of thing that seem to me that uh, this is not yet a done deal, but I guess we should assume that it is. I don't yeah, there's uh, according to one of the stories I read, they have to get the approval of Major League Baseball because there's more than a million dollars cash involved. Uh, there's going to be some contract restructuring. I guess Arenado has no trade clauses and opt-outs that are going to be adjusted, and that has to get the approval of the Players Association. So, yeah, you're right. This is not a done deal, but all the stories I've seen say, even even though it is not technically a done deal, it's a done deal that the, these uh, these are just, as you said, they're hoops they have to jump through. But it's not like they're little tiny hoops for great big people. They're they're great right. big hoops for little tiny people, so it shouldn't be a problem. Uh, so let's get to fantasy baseball, Gene. That's why we're here. Uh, what drafting have you been doing so far? I have done zero drafts so far. That surprises Without me. A first- Without a first pitch, Arizona. That's the first draft that I usually do, but. It wasn't on this year, so I was going to do one in early January, but then it came to vacation. I don't want to be doing a, a you know, a slow draft when I'm in, on the beach in Mexico. Um, so I said I'd wait until, uh, and I'll start this week. I'll, I'll do a, I'll do a hundred and fifty, hundred and fifty dollar NFBC fifty man draft, and I'll do maybe a couple of the cut line best ball things, which I love, and then I'll do my main event and. Uh, that's it. You know, I'm going to keep it 
simple. No experts drafts this year? Uh, no, I, uh, I decided not to do, uh, to, I decided to forsake them for, for various reasons, but, um, uh, I'll do an experts draft in the cut line. There's an athletic one, uh, that does that. And I did it last year and that was fun. And I'll do that one again. I'm also going to do the great fantasy baseball invitational. So that's my experts. That's my experts league. That's a terrific league. Yeah, I'm going to be doing that, and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, starting to do some planning for that already it probably puts me behind a lot of the younger guys who have been thinking about it ever since uh, November, if you believe them on Twitter. Uh, you, you mentioned that you uh, produced another edition of the Wise Guy Baseball uh, annual for 2021. I, I know you said it's not going to be distributed, but when you're looking at figuring out your projections and ideas for 2021, and you're not a hard projections guy, but you're still thinking about likelihood of these players doing, and that largely depends on what happened the previous year, but last year was a short season. How are you incorporating the 2020 player performances from that short season into your 2021 expectations? As individual data points, um, with the weight that they have, third of a season here, third of a season there, I'm still looking at trends. I'm still looking at drastic changes that happened in underlying skills, of which there were many. Um, perhaps they're exaggerated, but you look for corroboration. You know, you look for, you know, if his strikeouts were down, were his swinging strikes down? Where what is he doing? What is he doing differently? And uh, so I think they're data points. I think that in some cases it's very difficult to see what was just what's just fluff that would not that would have blown away with another hundred games and what is lasting. So it's I think it's more difficult. But they're data points as a third of a season. So I, you know I take them as an individual. Each player is different, and uh, I weigh it. I change the weighting depending on what what the difference is in the player. If there's no difference in the player, well, that's just more evidence on the side of what the guy is. So, and there's plenty of that too. You made a point in the uh, annual, and you shared it with with me and some others I know uh, because you like to get the word out a little bit anyway. And you're going to be using a lot of the content in the athletic in the weeks and months to come. But you made a point that we should take Major League Baseball playoffs into more account than we often do. Why? Why is that? Well, first of all, they're so long. They're you know they're it's a substantial body of work. But second of all, you see moves that managers make. Uh, the fact that Mangueras Sierra started a playoff game in center field for the Marlins is important for for 2021. It shows that he has the confidence of of the of the manager. Um, Sometimes trends that happened in the regular season were contradicted in the playoffs. Um, that's also a very important. Um, you know, if you look at, uh, for example, Julio Urias, uh, if you look at his strikeout rates, they were way down in the regular season, but they were way back up in the playoffs against presumably superior competition. So that tells me, hey, ignore the regular season on this guy. He's, you know, he's hot stuff. Um, so they're baseball games, they're professional baseball games at, at an even higher level of competition than, uh, than the regular season. So, I mean, don't overrate them, but definitely take them into account. They matter. If there's a change in a, in a player's game, um, trying to think of the guy's name on the, uh, the web on the Braves, 
um, reliever on the Braves. He's very successful during the regular season. But the Dodgers were very aggressive against him in the playoffs with great success. The Dodgers are not a very aggressive team. So that tells me that somebody said, let's get after this guy, go after the first couple of pitches. And it worked. And that, you know, that can have very important implications for, uh, for 2021. I thought the point that you made about the caliber of the competition and the intensity of the competition, I think, are really important. And when we think about batters, you know, it's a truism that during the regular season, a lot of batters feast on the, those fourth starters and, you know, mop-up type relievers that get thrown in there. And the test of a hitter is how he does against the best pitching. And in the playoffs, they tend to face the best pitching most of the time. And so I think you're right that that provides an interesting data point from the hitter side as well. Right. And as I say, nowadays with the the more reps, the extra playoff series, I mean, you know, you look at Cody Bellinger, I mean, look at his career. He's got a, you know, he's got almost a whole season of, of at bats in the postseason because uh, he's in the playoffs every year and they go to the world series every year or they have, you know? So it, yeah, it's a lot of, it's a lot of information there that should not be ignored. No information should ever be ignored. And in Wise Guy Baseball, Gene, you also discussed the idea of pitcher management and the trend towards looking at times through the order. And at one point you said, the, and I quote, the data that supports removing pitchers before they face the opposing lineup three times is inherently biased. What did you mean by that? Well, almost every pitcher goes through the lineup once. Fewer, but still the vast majority go through the lineup twice. Far fewer go through three times, which means that they pitchers have no chance to uh, to uh, make up for the damage that they've done early in the third time through the order. The fact of the matter is in baseball, except in the rarest of circumstances, the odds are that the next batter is going to make an out, no matter how effective or how ineffective the pitcher is. So therefore, if they left him in, he's probably going to get the next guy out, which is going to make his third time through the order numbers better. So I, I scoff at these numbers. And you also pointed out, I, I think correctly, that if a pitcher's coming out at the end of this or partway through the third time through the order, chances are you're not getting the closer because it's only going to be in the, f- what, sixth inning or so. So you, the, uh, and a lot of those inherited runners are likelier to roll around and score as well, which makes the numbers again, look poorer than they might otherwise have. That's right. Uh, I mean, also, um, I don't think it's working as a major league thing. If you look at the runs allowed in innings one, three, four to six and seven to nine, you'll see that four to six is by far the most runs allowed. And I think that's also why strand rates have been declining steadily since since Ron Chandler first introduced them to the public. The strand rate and now it started out it was about I think it was over seventy five percent and now it's barely seventy one percent and it continues down. So I mean that's something to to bear in mind. 
you know what, uh, if you separate that out into relief strand rate and uh, starter strand rate, it's even more stark. Uh, th- those declines, especially on the starter side, uh, relievers, because they have so relatively few batters to, uh, and there's inherited batters, bequeathed uh, runners and so forth. But yeah, the, the, the strand rate situation for starters is even more dire than you suggest. Uh, it's Patrick Davitt at Baseball HQ Radio with Gene McCaffrey, wise guy, baseball and the athletic. And Gene, let's talk about some of your thoughts on on draft strategy for this new season coming up. You said in Wise Guy Baseball that your 2021 approach is going to be to target a true ace, and that is Jacob deGrom, you say should be the number one overall pick, or Garrett Cole. And you're going to target that true ace at the very top of the draft, then a lesser ace in round three or round four, depending on how the draft falls in between. And you did say you'd rather have hitters in rounds two and three if you could get that second starter in round four. What's your thinking behind this pitcher-focused approach? Well, if the the impact on the standings of a great starting pitcher is far more than that of any hitter, I mean, if the hitter wins the triple crown and steals 40 bases, then it's close. But you can't bet any hitter to do that. Um, and then, of course, there's the chance that DeGrom would be great, which I think is going to happen. I mean, I've had him as the number one pitcher three years in a row, and it hasn't really been that in the first two years. And I think that this is the year where reality will assert itself and he will, you know, he'll be the number one pitcher um, going away, I hope. Um, and then after DeGrom and Cole, there's a whole lot of pitchers, I mean, maybe as many as 12, who are really good pitchers legitimate aces for their teams, little shaky as number ones for rotisserie teams, but great as number two guys. And my thinking there is to grab the last of those guys uh, in the fourth round, if possible, and see how the draft goes. You never know. Um, and then in, fill it in between with two the two best hitters you can find and thereby start your draft in a really balanced situation. You can go anywhere you want, any way you want uh, in the as the draft goes on. So if DeGrom and Cole are drafted before your first pick comes up, suppose you're fairly down the, uh, the, the lineup of picking, you know, 11th, 12th, 13th, or the DeGrom and Cole are going to be gone. So what's plan B? Well, what I probably do in that case is take Trevor story. Um, and then pitchers two, three, and then a hitter in four, but we'll see how that goes. Um, yeah, I mean that could be a problem, and uh, if I'm drafting late, then 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 uh, then that will be a problem. And if story's not available, well, then I'll just take the best hitter that's available too. Uh, staying with pitcher strategy, Gene, especially starting pitchers, you say in Wise Guy Baseball 21 that uh, 20 years ago the starters got about 70% of the wins. Now it's barely 50% of the wins. I've talked about that here on Baseball HQ Radio and written about it at BaseballHQ.com. And the key for us is that many more wins are earned by pitchers who aren't on roto rosters at the time that they get the win, the, the mop-up guys and those uh, follow-on guys and so forth who don't get drafted. How can fantasy managers apply the fact of fewer wins into their draft strategy for pitchers? Well, of course, the the better pitchers are that much more valuable. The pitchers that are owned, every win that's owned is that much more valuable. Um, so what I think we should do is try to concentrate on getting those pitchers and those relievers later on who are pitching more innings, facing more batters, 
because there's a big difference in your chance of getting a win, whether you finish one inning or whether you finish two innings or whether you don't finish any innings. Uh, we'll see about the three batter rule, but that, uh, that will have an effect on it too. I think what, what people should be doing is measuring relievers, looking how many batters they face through uh, in, in an appearance, which is the same thing, I guess, as you look at innings pitched and appearances, and you want relievers who pitch more innings than appearances. The more, the better. Gene, we had some technical trouble, so we've moved to the telephone. An enduring discussion in fantasy baseball is how to manage position scarcity. And you said that if you know how the stats are going to end up, scarcity matters a lot when you're picking your team. But of course, we don't know what the stats are going to be. And in fact, you point out, we don't know what the scarce positions will be. How do we fold in scarcity planning in a modern draft strategy? Well, I don't think there's really that much we can do. The thought occurred to me during the uh, drafts that we were doing in the off season, where we would draft the previous season where everybody knew what the stats were. And when you when that's true then you can look at the catchers and the middle relievers who are uh, semi-closers or even not closers at all, but who were fantastic. And uh, their stats are enormously valuable in, in those things. And they, they really open you up later on for to take pitchers who might be you know mediocre or sub-mediocre in averages but gave you wins and strikeouts, that sort of thing. and Or catchers who were way above the pack. Um, so it was one of those things that occurred to me then, and and that's the way people started drafting. They really realized that after doing it one time around. But I don't think there's really that much we can do about it in, in 2021 other than to use perceived position scarcity as a tiebreaker, um, you know, for catcher or for especially for uh, uh, middle relievers. Is there any opportunity to game the table by thinking, well, everybody else does believe in position scarcity, therefore I can predict that I've seen Jacob Realmuto go in an experts draft and an NFPC draft in the second round, which seems like a pretty severe overreaction to position scarcity. But if you know that people at your table are going to apply position scarcity, even though, as you said, we don't actually know where it is or how it's going to work, is there a way to, to, to tactically take advantage of that? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that that's uh, a way overreaction to take Rio Muto that fast. I think the best way to do it is to uh, try to get the uh, Wilson Contreras three rounds later. I mean, it's a. Uh, I don't think that Rio Muto is going to be that much better, if any better, um, in 2021. So uh, that's something that, that would. Once I saw somebody do that with Rio Muto, I would be thinking about Wilson Contreras and possibly jumping the gun on him a little bit. He's going much later. Uh, the other thing is, is that the same thing is going to occur to other drafters when they see that. So uh, I do that with closers when I see there's usually somebody uh, who I like just as much as the number one ranked closer, and when I see, uh, I wait until the number one closer goes, and then I take the guy that I really like, and that that's about all you can do, I think. But it's worth doing. And we should say that in auctions, uh, you have the additional tactical possibility if you suspect that catchers are going to be overvalued is nominate the best catcher right away and chase a bunch of surplus dollars out of the draft. If, if you knew that Jacob Real Muto at your table, somebody valued him as a second rounder, yeah, that's a $25, $26 equivalent, and probably uh, that's an overpay, so you put him out there and let somebody overpay. Yeah, that's true. A, a related topic, and uh, 
I think it's really important for 2021, as I was writing, it was occurring to me, that all these uh, middle relievers and semi-closers, and I'm doing the research and I'm valuing this guy's worth $6, this guy's worth $4, this guy's worth $3. It occurred to me that there are far more guys who are worth, who are going to be worth, say, between 5 and $10 than there are draft spots. So it really behooves us this year to, if you're in a mono league especially, um, to wait and to fill your last two roster spots with dollar pitchers because they are going to be there. There's too many of them for them not to be there at the end for a buck. And so you're going to save yourself some money if you, and, and then, you know, that five, ten bucks is going to come in handy during the auction when you know that at the end you're going to get a quality reliever for a dollar. And they're fungible at that point, too. If uh, something doesn't pan out for whatever reason, starts the season poorly, you throw them in and get another one out of the free agent pool because they're still going to be there, especially in a mono situation, especially in a mixed situation, but in both situations. Uh, Gene, in a weirder sort of possible scarcity, you pointed out that there's a lot of fantasy shortstops this year who are going to be top two rounds in value. Uh, Our Baseball HQ projections, I checked, seven shortstops in the top two rounds. Does that create a weird kind of position scarcity for top shortstops that we need to react to when we're doing our uh, strategizing? It could. Um, I I have even more. I mean, I have uh, I have nine who should go that high. It could, but in this particular case, I don't think it will because it depends on what you think of um, of Xander Bogarts, who I have ranked much higher than most other people because he's stealing bases. Um, and if he steals 15 bases, then I think he's just as good as any of them, um, at least going in. Um, also, you could fall back to Carlos Correa or Dansby Swanson or Glaber Torres, which I would be perfectly happy with. If, if you, too, are comfortable with that, then I wouldn't worry about it. Um, but I do think that in the early rounds, you should take the the... the the player who's going to give you the best stats and in a lot of cases that's going to be the shortstop this year i thought you know if i was lucky enough to get trevor story in the first round and and there's a fairly decent chance that somebody like Bo bichette is going to roll around to me as the most valuable player when i take my second turn i could take bichette and squeeze the table on the top shortstops but I think we can agree the valuations aren't really that precise. So I believe my temptation we would be to skip Bichette for some nearby player of similar value. Uh, Baseball HQ has Manny Machado, George Springer, uh, Lucas Giolito, Max Scherzer, if you need a, a near-A starter to get your pitching staff started. Uh, how would you play that situation? You've, ha- you've got Trevor Story in your pocket. Now Bo Bichette rolls around. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with taking Bichette there except – um, with my strategy of having um, of two ace pitchers, so I would probably take the best pitcher available at that point. But I don't think there's anything wrong if you want to if you want to go that way. If you think that Bichette is is going to produce the best stats at that at that particular point, if it's a toss of the coin between him and as you say Machado, okay, go ahead and take Machado. That that's fine. Um, it gives you a little bit more flexibility. I don't think it's a big deal either way, but. You know, it it makes you feel a little bit better. I I don't know if it makes you do any better, though. Yeah, I was just thinking of the point that uh, if you can get a a shortstop or a third baseman 
with the pick and you've already got a decent shortstop, you might want to fill in uh, your third base slot rather than filling your middle infield spot with a, an excellent guy. But in the long run, I think you're right. Sure. And of course, a lot depends on how the table is playing. Uh, you mentioned that you, you want to get that second near a starter, but if there's lots of them left and you think you're going to be able to get one in the fourth round, then maybe you do that instead. Uh, you also discussed in uh, in uh, Wise Guy Baseball the idea of a true first-rounder strategy. And I think mostly of this as it applies to the positions you apply for in Kentucky Derby Leagues where you enter your preferences for your slot. And I'd like to go over this with you, Gene. First, what is your true first-rounders strategy? Well, I've used it many times in the past. And what it is is to... Uh to list the players who I consider to be true first-rounders, that is to say uh, four-category contribu- elite contributors um, who you can pretty much bank on to do that. It's conceivable that a guy could be three-and-a-half if he was really outstanding in stolen bases or something like that. But basically four-category hitter or pitcher. And list those guys, and you want to draft in the last spot so that you get uh, you're guaranteed to get a first rounder, and then you get the higher pick coming back. So you say in the wise guy baseball, there are too many of those guys this year for that strategy to work. What did you mean? Well, I mean, there's more than one. There's more than a round's worth of them. I mean, by my count, it depends on it depends on how you value the the pitchers, but there could be as many as twenty five. There were certainly more than fifteen. Um, so. And I'm not saying that you can't do that. You could still do that. What you could do is you say, I want to pick eighth, say, and therefore you get two true first-rounders. That's a valid strategy. I'm not doing it this year because because of two reasons. One, because I want the ace pitcher. I want DeGrom or Cole up top. But even if I don't get that, this year, the interesting thing is that there are five or six players who are legitimate first picks. And what you might want to do instead is pick fifth or sixth so that you're guaranteed to get one of those guys and get the earlier guys coming back. I thought it was interesting that you had the courage to debunk your own theory. You say in Wise Guy Baseball it's more of a psychological boost than an actual help because of a key factor, and the factor is your draft is almost certainly not going to go according to your chalk. How does that matter? Well, I mean, I've never been in a draft even where even the first round went the way the ADP said it was going to go. And, you know, the longer you go, the less true, you know, the more true that is. So it is it's more of a, a psychological, I feel better. Um, I know that I'm, you know, we talk about the first two rounds because we can. We have, you know, you and I, we can't discuss the third round or the seventh round of a draft because we have no idea who's going to be available. So, I mean, we try to plan for what we actually can plan for, even though we can't really plan for it that well. So, you know, we do the best we can, right? That is exactly right. Uh, Moving on, Gene, you argue that it doesn't much matter how you approach saves in a draft because you expect to be reacting. What did you mean? Well, of course, the once the season starts, the closer merry-go-round gets going, and it doesn't really stop until the last week. So, I mean, there are any which any strategy that you employ to to get saves can work or it cannot work, and you basically expect to be, uh, you know, you can get make sure you get three legitimate closers. You can draft no closers at all, 
Both those strategies are perfectly viable. You could do anything in between. Um, these are also viable. And now, you know, the fact that it's so unstable does lend itself a little bit to dumping or semi-dumping the category. In other words, get maybe one closer and then figure you're going to, you know, you'll waste a lot of fab money, but eventually you're going to hit on something. Um, so, I mean, a lot of people are doing that these days. It makes perfect sense. Uh, but I just say, let the draft tell you what to do. And, you know, we're good enough players that we can watch the uh, watch the uh, the fab market and watch the closer situations and see and react. But we are going to be reacting because it's never going to, it's not going to end anywhere close to the way it starts. And finally, Gene, before we leave the world of uh, fantasy strategy for drafting, in Wise Guy Baseball, you use the word boring several times, and in a favorable way when you're discussing player value in single league formats. Why is boring production good in single league formats and by inference maybe less good in mixed formats? Well, because people uh, undervalue boring players, but the best way to win in any uh, roto league, the best way to win the hitting is to get the most plate appearances. I mean, almost always those teams are at the top of the standings. Uh, I mean, 90, I don't know what the percentage is. It's well into the 90s. Um, so, therefore, these players who are unexciting, but who produce, especially in good lineup spots that might be not noticed by, uh, by the competition, uh, good RBI slots, good run scored slots. Those guys are the are uh, are boring, unsexy, but very effective when you add them up in uh, in mono league formats, especially. The idea in mono league formats is to not have any holes or one hole if you can. If you can do it, the best way to do it uh, is to have a team in a mono league where you don't have any players except. Guys who are the worst players you have are, are bad side of platoon guys who are still valuable in those formats. And in mixed formats, you're going to be a little more aggressive or adventuresome. Yeah, because the the, the replacement pool is is deeper. I mean, the same thing applies there, but it's just at a higher level. Uh, you know, a guy like Cole Calhoun would apply in that he's boring in, in the mixed league sense. Um, but he's definitely a valuable player in mixed leagues. It's just at a just at a higher level. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Gene McCaffrey from the Athletic and Wise Guy Baseball. And Gene, uh, let's talk about hitters. Uh, I'd like before we talk about specific guys to, to ask you about something you said about meatball percentage. You're down on hitters who lead the stats in meatball percentage. What is meatball percentage, and why don't you like it? Well, I, I'm not really sure about it. I'm going to delve. I did some research. I'm going to do more. But I discovered this on BaseballSavant.com. And I said, hmm, this looks like an interesting concept. Um, the idea that you know certain hitters in a, in a season are going to see more or less uh, meatballs. and Because every major league hitter is capable of hitting a meatball out of the ballpark or they wouldn't be in the major leagues. Um, so I did look and I saw that it's pretty darn consistent you know hitters face seven percent seven point one to be precise is the uh, is the meatball percentage and 96 percent of the hitters are within two percentage points of that and one percentage point is 22 meatballs so if you're down at the bottom you know if you're getting uh, if you saw five percent meatballs and you can expect to see seven percent well that's 44 more meatballs and that's 
something that's worth knowing. Now, whether it applies, um, I looked at the guys who were who saw the most meatballs, and the top four were guys who didn't really have very good years. But the two after that were uh, uh, Byron Buxton and Travis Darno who had great years. Um, so I don't know how that applies. But down at the bottom of the list was Bryce Harper. And I said, well, if Bryce Harper is going to see 50 more meatballs this year, I'm interested in that. Um, so, well, we'll see. Let, I'm going to do a little more research. I think it's worth everybody doing, um, you know, digging into the historical numbers that uh, – at baseball savant and see if we can't uh, get something usable out of this. It seems logically that there should be something usable over there. Well, I think it'll depend on two things. First of all, is it consistent from year to year? Is Byron Buxton always at the bottom and is, you know, whoever's at the top last year always at the top? And it strikes me also that there might be a bias in that if you're a pitcher, you're more likely to throw a meatball to a guy who isn't going to do much with it that you, or you suspect isn't going to do much with it but when you're looking at Bryce Harper you think I can't throw this guy a meatball because he's going to hit it you know into Allegheny County or something and I don't want that to happen so that would be two sources of of bias or slant that might occur in the research I think that those would be the things I'd be looking for yeah I agree and uh, from what from what I saw there did not seem to be any consistency in it. I thought, as as you did, that a guy might see, like Harper would be an example of a feared hitter who pitchers are really afraid to throw meatballs to. But on the other hand, um, you know, the rest of the list was not, was not you know, the, Miguel Cabrera, uh, Colin Moran, Eric Hosmer, Eddie Rosario, Ryan Mountcastle. I mean, these guys are decent hitters, they're not big walkers. They're not hackers. Is another group that might see more, uh, see fewer meatballs. Of why should I throw him one down the middle when he's going to hack? And now these guys are below average walkers, but they're hardly Javier Baez. So you know what you say is true and is definitely worth watching. But whether it actually plays that way, who knows? But let's research it because it's valuable information, I think, or could be. Another question for the researchers out there, or for you, or for me, for that matter, which pitchers throw the most meatballs? I'd be very curious whether that distribution of meatballs is relatively random, or whether the same pitchers keep showing up from year to year as, as being meatball throwers, and then there might be you know a divisional bias or something like that. Yeah, it's a, that's a good point. Um, related to that is if you look at the uh, swinging strike percentages and look for the percent, for the pitchers who have the lowest swing strike percentages um or uh, excuse me not swing uh, out of zone for the the pitchers who have to get the the fewest swings out of zone are pitchers who are wild um and that's that's a universal so that's kind of related to that and and may well play out as you know it's a question of command too you know i mean there's pitchers who are who are walking guys and then there's pitchers who are what they call wild in the strike zone which is a, uh, I don't know if that, how dubious or how valid that concept is, but I mean, you do see it sometimes. So, but I think it's a good area for, for future research and uh, should be fruitful for, for the people who have the, uh, who have to go up, get up and go to actually look at it. I remember at first pitch Arizona a year or two ago, maybe the last one we had or the one before, where one of the pitching analysts gave a presentation that it had to do with command, 
meaning the ability to put the ball in the strike zone where you want, which is a different kettle of fish than a guy who's in the strike zone but is not entirely sure where in the strike zone he's going to be on any particular pitch. And, of course, you want more of the former guys and fewer of the latter, and maybe that contributes to the meatball idea too because a meatball pitch is right down the middle, which is a strike, but it's not the kind of strike you want your guys to be throwing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Eno Saros has done a lot of really good research on this. Uh, what he calls the command plus rating, which is, which is a, a sort of a blended matrix of, uh, of stuff and ability to put it where he wants, based on where the catcher sets up, on uh, comparing it to other pitchers, and there, there, it looks like there's definitely some validity in that, because the because the pitchers who were, who score the highest tend to be the pitchers who are hey the best, so. Not a yep. lot of surprise yeah. there. I, I expect uh, people would would believe that you know Greg Maddox is probably a guy of great command plus because he could paint you know and and that's what, that's what we talk about and there's a method to their madness. Sometimes Greg Maddox did throw right down the middle, but that was because he knew the guy wasn't going to swing because he knew what he was doing out there. Right, right. Uh, yeah, the true masters are, are going to play it all the different ways that it can be played. Gene McCaffrey writes about fantasy baseball regularly for The Athletic. He'll be back in just a minute, but right now it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Facts and Flukes Performance Validation, analyst Brant Chesser digs into five national leaguers, including Blake Snell, Charlie Morton, and three other guys who weren't Tampa pitchers last season. In the GM's office, co-general manager Brent Hershey introduces UPUR, upside-only organization rankings based on each team's top-level prospect talent. And in Rotisserie Gaming, analyst Matt Cederholm looks at the effects of COVID, the short season in 2020, and long-term trends that could affect Roto-style fantasy baseball. And those are just three articles among literally dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com. I mentioned the player performance validation in Facts and Flukes. There's news updates and playing time today, roster forecasting and playing time tomorrow. There are buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse, injury analysis in Matt Cederholm's column, The Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like player projections updated every day, their leading indicators for hitters and pitchers, and even more in-season tools. So when you add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic and Wise Guy Baseball. Now let's get on to some individual hitters, Gene. Uh, one of your favorite kind of players to target is uh, last year's bum, a guy who had a bad year but has good talent. And you say that Jose Altuve on the surface looks like a prime last year's bum, but then you go on to say you're not so sure whether he's a prime last year's bum, why the reservation on Jose Altuve? Well, I mean, he's been striking. His strikeout rate is still good, but he's been striking out more basically every year since 2014. His base stealing, despite the fact that he's still got the speed, his base stealing has been terrible. His power's down. Um, you know, then all, that's even besides all the cheating scandal stuff, um, which I don't know how to factor anyway. 
But I mean, even blowing that aside, I very fear, very much fear that he's reached a new level of, you know, hitting 265 and slugging 410 with seven stolen bases. And I don't want to pay much more than that for him because there's there's downside possibility here. More downside than upside, I think, is the key point. You're right. Uh, you said in Wise Guy Baseball, there's a lot to like about Cody Bellinger. You talked about him, but you also mentioned Andrew Benintendi. What is it about Andrew Benintendi, who has been a disappointment the last couple of seasons, that makes you think that maybe Andrew Benintendi's a little better than we think? Well, I mean, I went into last year blaming his 2019 on injury, and then, of course, he went out and went out and got hurt again. Um, I know I wasn't alone in think going into 2019 and thinking that this is a near 300 hitter with 2020 batting under you know in the you know second or f- fifth in the lineup you know in a good lineup spot and um, I haven't really seen anything to uh, to change my mind and if anything he's been a little too passive and I think that's the easiest problem to fix so considering how far he's going to fall. I mean, he seems to be going after 150. I think he's worth a shot at that. That he uh, that he bounces back. I mean, it's unusual that a, that a player with his pedigree and broad range of skills would really fall off the earth as he has. So I I think he's worth worth a rebound shot. Speaking of passivity, you use that term as well for Mitch Garver of the Twins, who had a terrific year a couple of years ago, then really fell off the face of the earth uh, last year. He's still on your 2021 radar, Gene. What is this passivity, and why will you roster Mitch Garver in spite of it? Well, I'll roster him as a number two catcher, not as a number one, um, because I do fear that if he keeps this up, he's going to lose his job, uh, because he should lose his job if he keeps it up. I think that you know, passivity is the easiest problem for a hitter to solve, but that doesn't mean he's going to solve it. And I don't like when when hitters do not swing at strikes. Um, it's great not to swing at bad pitches, but you got to swing at the good ones. And he hasn't been doing that. And unless he starts doing it, he's not going to play. Uh, but if he does do it, then, you know, this is a guy who slugged well over 600. So he's got definite major power and could turn out to be the best second catcher. And if you take him as a second catcher, well, if he doesn't come, if he doesn't pan out, well, you, you know, it's not that big a deal to replace him. Um, but I think again, he's worth a shot. I would watch him in the spring, see what he's doing, you know, with the plate, see if he's actually swinging at pitches that he can hit. Yeah, my concern about that strategy is that there's going to be somebody out there who's going to think Mitch Garver's going to be a bounce-back guy, and they're going to target him as a first catcher, and that means you're not going to get him, which is fine if you don't believe in him. Uh, we talked right. about Bo Bichette earlier, Gene. He comes into the season off what looks like a great 2020 in the short campaign, batted 300, had an 840 OPS, and if you prorate his counting stats, 25 homers, 117 RBI, 112 runs scored, and 20 bags. This is borderline first-round territory. But he also had a fairly serious knee injury during uh, the 2020 short run. And when he came back in September, 242 batting average, 620 OPS, and prorated uh, 100 RBIs, which is still good, but only 71 runs. And he didn't hit any home runs, and he didn't steal any bases. But you say a closer look makes Bichette look less risky to you. What was in your closer look that gave you that confidence? I'm assuming that he's going to be fine as far as his knee is concerned. 
I mean, that's an injury I think that really affected him, and I think he came back too soon. But, I mean, what I like about him basically is that he's done what he had to do in the chances that he's had to do them. Um, he's an aggressive hitter, um, but I think in the good sense. And he, I think he has too much talent to, for it to, for that little snippet uh, at the end when, he, when I think he was hurt to be really meaningful. So I'm, I'm inclined, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. You mentioned Byron Buxton earlier. You say you're compromised with guys like him, injury-riddled, a lot of talent, but uh, obviously a big injury risk is you're going to chase them in mixed leagues and then bid on 120 games played in only leagues. How does that work? Well, I'm basically discounting them by 25% because, I, as I say, I do not want holes in my mono-league teams. So, therefore, guys like Byron Buxton are less valuable there. But if you're looking for a hitter with profit potential, there's there may be no hitter who has more profit potential than Byron Buxton. And of course, he upped the ante on his tees last year by hitting 13 home runs. I mean, this is a guy with 99th percentile speed. Um, so when a guy like that starts, you know, hitting home runs at that pace, I mean, wow! I mean, that's first round stuff if he can keep it up for a whole season. Um, so a mixed league where if he goes down, you can find a better replacement seems to me to be the obvious place to take a chance on guys like that. I don't know if you want to invest in them on every single team, but I think that all you should have them somewhere is what I think. Seems to imply that you won't be getting a Byron Buxton too often in American League-only formats because there's always somebody at the table who's willing to bet that this is the year when Byron Buxton doesn't get hurt, and it never is. Yeah, well, that's that's true, but, you know, sometimes they just do stay healthy. Sometimes, you know, his injuries have not been soft tissue, which is where, you know, where I really start to think that players actually are injury-prone. Um, and, yeah, okay, so if somebody wants to bid $22 for him in, in an AL league, I'm, I'm not going to get him. And good luck to you because you can win that way. I'm not denying that, but I just, I just, there's a time and a place for everything. And I think that that's the way to deal with those players. What makes Tommy Edmond one of your tougher calls of 2021? Because he's got great speed and he got caught stealing four times with two stolen bases. Um, I, I had a really, you know, tough to get a handle on him. I mean, I don't, I don't really know what I'm doing with 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 him, and you know, so I'm not going to get 14 out of 15 players in my mixed league anyway, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to get the players that I, you know, the players that I am going to get. I'm not going to take one who, who I really don't have any kind of handle on. I mean, he's got a lot of potential. I agree, but. And he's got the multi-position eligibility, but don't let that you know. Don't let the multi-position eligibility. Um, don't overrate it because you know if you get crap at any one of ten roster spots, who cares? You know. So I'm not uh, when I don't have a handle on a player, I don't get him. And fine, you know, prove it to me, Tommy. It's like that old joke about the guy who's asked about a restaurant that he's been to. He says, well, the food is terrible, but the portions are really big. Yeah, right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, boy, the band was terrible, but they played for three hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. 
you seem unlikely, Gene, to get Luis Robert on many of your rosters. Why not? Well, I think people are overreacting to the power speed, which is undeniable. I, uh, but there are three other categories, and from what I can see, he doesn't look like he's going to be an asset in any of them. Uh, of course, if he breaks out, then the lineup slot will take care of itself. But last year he hit sixth and seventh, and he's going to start there this year. He's a batting average risk. So, um, you know, again, he's a guy that uh, he's got plenty of talent, and I and I don't hate him by any means. But I, I'm not taking him in the third round with three categories at risk. Nor will you be targeting Victor Robles. What's your story there? Well, I mean, I just don't think he's doing any of the things that a speed guy needs to do. Um, you know, he's not walking, he's swinging too much, he's pulling too much, he's doing all the bad things. Um, I do like that he uh, that he went and played winter ball, which shows that he's got some awareness that he needs has work to do. He hasn't done that well in winter ball. Um, so, uh, again, I think people might be overreacting to the... Uh, to the perceived lack of speed, which is, doesn't really exist. Um, but yeah, you know, ground balls are down, the sweet spot percentage is down, he's, you know, he's striking out more, and he didn't steal bases, he stole four bases, so, uh, you know, no thank you. The thing I remember about Victor Robles was that first pitch Arizona two or three years ago when he was down there, and, and uh, he got pulled from a game because he didn't run out a pop-up. And to me, that's a, a maturity question, and it's one of those kind of things that, you know, we can't hold against a player for his entire career. I mean, sometimes it turns out you can, but uh, like you said, he went down and played winter ball this year, so maybe he's starting to figure out that his natural talent isn't enough at the uh, major league level. Uh, Kyle Tucker of Houston showed some excellent skills growth from 2019 through the short season last year, and his ADPs make him the eighth best outfielder off the board in this year's drafts. And you said that's not far off your estimate. I think you have him 11th, but you still say you'd rather target Michael Conforto or Starling Marte later. What's your thinking about Kyle Tucker? Well, that is no knock on Kyle Tucker. Uh, I like him a great deal. Uh, it's more It's more. I'm saying that I really love Conforto and Starling Marte. And, and the reason for that is, I mean, I grade Conforto out as basically Freddie Freeman. And that's, you know, if he's not quite Freddie Freeman, he's damn close. Starling Marte is a guy who's been getting faster as the years have gone by. And I think that those two guys are real, are great targets for this year. Not to say that Kyle Tucker is not. I think he is. Um, but... If I don't get him, I, I think I'm going to be just as happy with Conforto or Marte around later. Yeah, it's a cost-value thing for me, too. And uh, one of the concerns you have is that Kyle Tucker hasn't been at this that long, so there's a bit bit more playing time and uh, per, more performance risk than there would be with those other two guys who have been doing it for a little bit longer. Uh, you wrote about Alex Verdugo, and you called him a genuine building block hitter. All five categories may be a chance to outperform in one or two of those categories. And he's a ninth-round ADP you say you're going to reach. Yeah, well, I like these guys who can develop anyway. Um, uh, people question his power, and, and they might be right. And but I think he's got a you know something of a power speed floor. Um, his batting average floor is very high. He's going to be hitting, uh, I think, at the top of the lineup or you know one of the first five slots. And so I, I think he's a good target. I think anybody who can develop three ways is a really good bet 
to develop one way or two ways or even three ways. So, yeah, he's high. I've had a little, I've heard a little things about his makeup issues with with Alex Verdugo, but I, I don't know anything about them, and I and I'm not going to make a judgment based on uh, based on something so intangible um, unless I have more concrete information. Yeah, it's one of those news versus noise type of situations. I seem to recall that the knock on Verdugo was that, you know, I got a hangnail, I'm not playing type of guys. And uh, and maybe that's true and maybe it's not. Like you said, we're going to have to get better intel before we can make a decision on Alex Verdugo. But you're right, he's got all the tools and, and those all those different paths to value make him really interesting. Uh, you said in Wise Guy Baseball, Luke Voigt is unlikely to be this year's Luke Voigt. Obviously, he won't be any kind of surprise, but is there more to it than that? Well, no. I, with Luke Voigt, it's just a question of he, he's not a six. He's not a six hundred slugger. I don't think. Um, I think that you know he had a great year, um, but he's going to be overpriced relative to his true value. There are very few 600 sluggers in Major League history, and Luke Voigt is not one of them. Um, so I think that there are any number of, you know, I still have him in the top 10 among my first basemen, but uh, I don't see a reason why he's a better pick than several guys who he's going ahead of. Uh, Matt Olson, uh, Pete Alonso, Paul Goldschmidt off the top of my head. Vlad Jr. is another one who I'm very high on this year. Would take ahead of Voigt too, which people might scratch their heads at. But let's see in October. Well, you know what? Uh, we get a lot of Vlad Guerrero information up here in the near the Toronto area, and they showed a picture of him in spring training. And I'm not kidding you, Gene. He looks like he's lost 50 pounds, and which is great. Which is which great. is great. I I don't I don't think his physical condition means anything at this stage of the game. I mean, I think it's going to, if he doesn't get it under control, I think it's going to be an issue five years from now. But, uh, you know, the, the hitting ability that he's shown in the major leagues, he's basically unstoppable over time. And don't give me his ground ball rate or anything like that because it's all, you know, that can change in a minute. And I don't give a damn because even if he hits only 20 homers, if he has that ground ball rate, he's still going to hit 300. And that's still a nice, a nice player. There might be a hidden advantage to that kind of weight loss, though, or just that kind of commitment to fitness. He wasn't a bad third baseman when he was over there playing at, you know, 550 pounds or whatever it was. His problem was he had very limited range, and he was clumsy on his feet, and I think it partly was because he was so heavy. And I wonder, because they've made a lot of changes in Toronto this year with the free agent signings, there's still a bit of an opening at third base. And if he can move back over there and get, you know, get his at-bats at third as well as at first, multiple position eligibility, all that kind of stuff, I think uh, it'll be really interesting to watch Vlad Guerrero Jr. in the uh, spring training so we can see what their plans are for him. Yeah, I mean, it could be a plus. And the only thing that I worry about with guys like that is, Yes, you've had all winter, and yes, you're in great physical shape. But what happens when you go on the road and you can eat whatever you want, whenever you want? You know, you get out. You know, you get out of a ball game at eleven o'clock at night. You have a feast at one o'clock in the morning, and then you go to bed. That's not a very good way to keep weight off. So, I mean, I worry about that, and and it's a hard thing to resist. And you know, anybody who's ever tried to lose weight knows that it's um, it, it's not that hard to take it off. It's really hard to keep it off. 
So uh, what you're saying is true as far as it goes. I just worry about it as as uh, continue as going on. The story we were hearing, Gene, was that it wasn't when he was on the road. It was when he was at home, and Grandma was uh, imported up here ah. to move into his apartment and cook for him. And you know, Grandma's, uh, oh, you yeah. know, have another one, have another one, have another one. Manja, manja. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and apparently she's out of the picture up here now, and he's got a nutritionist. And I don't know what the team plans to do when they go on the road to keep him on the straight and narrow. But I honestly believe that if he if he can stay that much lighter, it can't help but make him a better player on the field. And I'm really excited about Vladimir Guerrero this year in a way that I haven't been the last couple. Uh, let's talk about Jared Walsh. This guy's uh, an Angels first baseman, probably not widely known. You point out that he's being drafted with corner infielders, but you say he has a beautiful offensive profile. Why the enthusiasm? He's a 27-year-old. He's got around 200 big league plate appearances. What's the attraction? Well, I really like the fact that he drastically cut his strikeouts last year, and I especially like the fact that he's batting behind Trout and Rendon, and that's a beautiful RBI spot, and uh, I think that elevates him to a legit first baseman, and he's going with the corner infielder, so um, he's definitely a target of mine. I think it's lefties, too, and I really like that, So, and the images also really need left-handed hitting. So uh, I think he's perfectly positioned to have a big increase in value. I don't worry about the age. He's a late bloomer. You know, he may fade fast, um, but it isn't going to be this year. So You have uh, Jesse Winker a couple of rounds higher than his 55 outfield number by ADP. What do you like about Jesse Winker? Well, he also took a big step up this year, and... Uh, you know, 932 OPS is not is nothing to sneeze at. Um, I think that he only swung at 22.5% of the pitches out of the strike zone um, and a 49% hard hit rate. That's basically all you need to see. I mean, this guy is a hitter. Um, I think he's going to get a chance to play and beat his projections by, by a good amount. I don't think the Reds have anywhere near the talent that they can afford to put a guy like that on the bench. So, yeah, I mean, I have him at 35 in the outfielders, and he's, I think he's now about 55 in the ADPs. So I think he's definitely worth a reach. And finally, Gene, Christian Yelich, you don't even have him as a first-rounder in your rankings, you say, not even a $30 player anymore. Why wouldn't you want to bet the rebound from what we can all acknowledge was a horrendous short season in 2020? Well, you know, I wrote about him in my athletic column at the end of last year, and what I said then was I noticed the fact that he was also suffering from excessive passivity, and I predicted then that he was going to see the error of his ways and start being more aggressive. He did not. I mean, in his last uh, 10 games, he walked 14 times and hit 148. Um, So now this hints that he might have been playing hurt. So he could get back into my first round or into my $30 and higher level, but he's not going to get there until I see him swinging the bat in spring training. Gene McCaffrey writes about fantasy baseball regularly for The Athletic. He'll be back in a second for part three of our discussion, including his Boons and Banes, our first for 2021. Cincinnati and out away from sweeping the 76 World Series. White takes a pitch high. Two balls and no strikes. 
They would be the first to sweep since Baltimore did it over the Dodgers in 1963. Swung on, high fly ball to left center should do it. There's Foster, and the 1976 World's Championship belongs to the Cincinnati Reds. In the ninth inning, the Yankees are out in order as the Reds in this fourth game in sweeping. Billy Martin's New York Yankees do it decisively. Four in the ninth inning and a 7-2 final score. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick David. Time for part three of our expert interview with Gene McCaffrey. And Gene, we've talked about the hitters, so let's move on to the starting pitchers. And this first one really caught my eye. You said in Wise Guy Baseball you would rank Trevor Bauer number one among starting pitchers, ahead of Jacob deGrom, ahead of Garrett Cole, if Trevor Bauer meets a specific condition. What does he have to do to move up to become your number one starter for 2021? Well, I don't think it's going to happen, but I did hear him say that he wants to pitch in a four-man rotation, and that just set my heart aflutter. Now, it's possible. I don't think that any team is going to let him do that, but another team might give him, you know, instead of 32 starts, 36 starts, if that's what he wants to do. And if he starts 36 games, I think you got you got to elevate him over the pitchers who might be a little better, but... Are only going to start 32. Yeah, when I read that too, and I thought, why wouldn't you if you're if you're the baseball team? You know, clearly you're going to think he's your best pitcher, and if he comes up to you and says, "I believe that I can handle pitching every fourth day rather than every fifth, and you say 36 starts, it could be as many as 40 if he's going every four days, and right. you're the general manager of the team, and you think. 40 starts for my number one pitcher instead of 32. That's eight starts not going to my number five pitcher. Yeah, I like that. Of course, they're going to be worried about injury, but uh, Trevor Bauer has demonstrated, I think, to the satisfaction of lots of people that he knows what he's doing with his own performance, and maybe they should take him at his word, give him his money, and let him go out there every four days. Yeah, I mean, at least give him a little bit, bit of extra rope and see how that goes. And then if it goes, then do a little more and do a little more. You know, it wasn't that long ago that, uh, you know, in our lifetime that pitchers were doing that. And, you know, as long as they don't start out too young, uh, I mean, a lot of them have long, long careers doing that. It never hurt their arms at all, as long as they didn't start doing it before the age of 25. Exactly. Um, so, you know, that was always the conventional wisdom Whereas today's conventional wisdom seems to be the less they pitch, the better they are, and the less they get hurt, which is not even true. Right. I mean, they get hurt more. So, uh, yeah, I mean, let's let's see what happens. I mean, how much he's going to be able to write his own ticket, I don't know. And how serious he was when he said it, I don't know either, because he, let's face it, he's kind of a screwball kind of guy, which I like, by the way. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I think that if you're looking for something to hang your hat on and you don't get the Grom or Cole, you might as well um, take a shot at, at Bauer at taking him at his word. Yeah, when it comes to being an oddball or a screwball or whatever people call him, I think that's how Major League Baseball and the people who cover it, like all institutions, tend to regard anybody who doesn't stay to the line that has been assigned to him. 
Right, he's an independent thinker. It makes me think of, uh, speaking of guys in our lifetime, Mike Marshall, who had the same kind of thing. Oh, he's a kook. He's always out there experimenting with weird arm angles and doing this and that. And all he did was throw 170 relief innings or whatever it was. And uh, I don't remember if he won the side. 208. 208 relief innings. And what do you had a bunch of wins, a bunch of saves, a bunch of strikeouts? Yeah. Like, yeah. as in terms of fantasy baseball, he's the maybe the greatest pitcher who ever lived, at least for that uh, particular period of time. Man, I, I'll tell you what, if I'm a general manager, and I know they're getting younger and that's good, but I would tend to look at a guy like Trevor Bauer and appreciate the fact that he seems to be thinking about this stuff and not just standing up there. And we know all the horror stories, Gene, that have occurred about pitchers who have some kind of weirdness about their delivery or something like that. And the pitching coach says, well, we can't have that. Start coming more over the top. Start throwing you know, this way or that way. And in, you know, in less than a season, he's out of baseball because they've ruined his arm because he was actually kinetically doing what he should have been doing, given his body type. And he knew that. I don't know. I, I, I like the idea that Trevor Bauer can do what he wants. And I think he's the kind of guy who's maybe likely to make it a point of where he signs, maybe take less money to pitch more often. Who could, who could argue with that if you're a general manager? Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. Earlier on, Gene, we talked about your draft strategy of a true ace and then a starting pitcher from the lesser aces pool. You mentioned how many there are of them, and you were pretty positive in your analysis of Kenta Maeda. Uh, what is it about Kenta Maeda that caught your eye? Well, I like the fact that uh, that they finally let him pitch more innings. Um, out of the that the Twins uh, discarded the supposed wisdom of Dave Roberts. Um, his hard hit rate was easily the best of any other qualifier, and it justifies his low his low BABIP. You can't bet on that repeating, but you can bet that his BABIP is going to be low. And he's on a good team. He's pitching more innings. I think he's very close to a uh, to a number one pitcher. And if you can get him as your number two pitcher, I think you are sitting pretty. When you say you can't bet a gene, do you mean you can't bet the BABIP or you can't bet the low hard hit rate? Well, you can't bet that he's going to have a 208 BABIP, but you can bet that he's going to have a 248 BABIP. Um, that's you know that's what happens when your when your hard hit rate is 24.7 percent. You know, and it's not, you know he didn't nose anybody out there. He beat them by I think it was four and a half points for the number two finisher. I mean, that's a guy with real skill. I mean, no question about it. Also, I mean. The phenomenal control, he only throws 26% fastballs, and he walks 4% of the batters. I mean, that is true mastery, and I think that we ignore that at our peril. Yeah, one of my projects for this offseason, Gene, has been to find pitchers who have excellent control, that is low walk percentages, and don't throw a lot of fastballs. They're managing to get that kind of level of control uh, and reduced walks despite throwing mostly breaking pitches and off-speed pitches because I think that's that's a kind of talent that is still relatively rare in baseball. I think it's moving towards that kind of ideal in a lot of instances, but those are the kinds of guys who interest me because they're often undervalued. Uh, speaking of undervalued, you made a point about Denelson Lamott of San Diego. Uh, on talent alone, you say he's actually a true ace, but there's also the significant injury risk. And ordinarily in our strategizing or tactics, we might think to split the difference between his value as a true ace and the significant injury, but you say that's not going to be possible with Lamette. What What did you mean? 
Well, I mean, I think he's either going to be fantastic or he's going to be nothing. Um, and and I don't think that it's wise to split the difference between them. And with a, in, in his case, I watch him in the spring. I mean, let's not forget that his injury was to his already repaired elbow. So there is significant risk of nothing here. Um, but I would watch him in the spring, and I think that if if he's pitching well in the spring, I think he's worth taking a shot, especially, again, in mixed leagues. In, the only, in mono leagues, I think I would... Uh, let somebody else take that risk, but I, I, he's not going to be. He's going to be available as a number two, which is slightly less risky. I mean, you're still digging yourself a hole if he's not good. But I think that if he's if he's okay in the spring, I'm gonna I'm gonna bite the bullet and take the shot, go for the glory. I think I'd be more interested in Maeda, frankly, uh, with the injury risk at that high level. In those top rounds, I'm really risk-averse, and uh, I think I'll let somebody else take that risk if they want to. Uh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I would definitely take Maeda first, no question about that, because I think there's very little, if no risk, if not no risk with Maeda. Frankie Montas of the A's, 313 ERA, 126 whip, over 2018 and 19 combined. Then last year, pretty ugly, a 560, 151 decimals in 11 starts. You're still in on Frankie Montas for this coming season. What's the appeal there? Well, up to a point I'm in on him. Um, you know, he started out fantastic. Um, after four starts, his ERA was like one and a half, and his whip was one, and he was striking guys out, and then he just, he allowed nine earned runs in his next start, and then he was terrible until the very end when he threw a gem in his last start, and then he got hit in the playoffs. To me, it was just a question of this guy could not put the ball where he wanted it. And again, this is a spring watch thing. I want to see what he's doing late in the spring as, as, as late as possible. I want to see if he's putting the ball where he wants to, and if he does, he's going to be a great pitcher. If he doesn't, then he's going to do what he did now. Now, this year, his price is going to be a lot lower, and that makes it that much more appealing. But again, I have to see it in the spring before I'm really on board with him. He's got, he's got some young potential. You say you're going to be ready to reach to get Framber Valdez as a number three starter in mixed drafts. What's the appeal with Framber Valdez? Well, he's got the un- almost unbeatable combination of extreme ground balls and, and strikes. 60% ground balls, 26.4 strikeouts. That's almost unbeatable. Add in 5.6 walks. Add in the fact that he's not really that young at 27. He's old enough. He had a heavy workload last year. He handled it easily. Um, and I think he's just he's under he's underrated. He's another guy who could definitely get Cy Young votes and is available and as far as I can see as a number three starting pitcher. And I think that's just a gift. Gene, does a number three in mixed drafts imply a number two in only leagues? Pretty much, yeah. That, I mean, that's there. There could be little variations on that, but basically, yes. In that same vein, you said Zach Wheeler makes an excellent number three in mixed leagues and could be arguably a number two in mixed leagues. You noted in particular he had a big jump in ground ball percentage from 45-ish to 56-ish. His fly ball rate really went down from the mid-30s to under 20. But his strikeouts were also down pretty significantly, 24% to 18, and his line drives were up from around 20-ish to around 25. It seems like a mixed bag, I guess what I'm saying here. What makes you so enthusiastic about Zach Wheeler? Well, first of all, he's made just about all the starts for three years now, so the injury risk 
you know, of course, all pitchers have injury risk, but it's minimal compared to, you know, the fears that used to be in play with him. Um, his velocity has increased every year since he's been in the major leagues, uh, which is really good. And, uh, you know, last year his velocity was the third highest of all uh, qualifying pitchers. Yes, his strikeout rate has declined with as his ground ball rate has gone up. That's the way it works mostly. Um, but he's going to get the volume because Joe Girard, the Phillies had the terrible bullpen last year, and Joe Girardi is not going to be running out to the mound to take Zach Wheeler out. So he's going to get volume, and that will compensate for the strikeout rate decline. And he should be an excellent number three and uh, arguable as a number two. Yeah, when you talk about the, the making up the strikeouts on volume, the first thing that pops into my head is I had Rick Porcello in his Cy Young year, and you know his strikeout rate was nothing to write home about, but he threw so many innings that he actually finished much nearer to the top of the strikeout table than you'd expect for a guy with that rate. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think he could pretty much write Wheeler in for 175 strikeouts, and that's that's perfectly fine these days. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Gene McCaffrey from Wise Guy Baseball and The Athletic. Gene, let's touch on some relievers. Uh, we talked earlier and you said you'd be very happy to take the second reliever taken, uh, let somebody else take the first. But you say Liam Hendricks should be the first, uh, so I guess you're going to target him if he's not. Is there any case for taking Hendricks in place of the near-ace starter that you might take in round four? I don't think it's wrong. I wouldn't do it because I don't think I have to do it. Um, the time when I'm going to be tempted to take Hendricks as soon as somebody takes Hader, then I think I would take Hendricks. I would be very tempted anyway to take Hendricks at that point. You know, um, he had a higher strikeout percentage than uh, than Hader last year, which is, if you look at Ks per nine, you don't see it. But if you look at um, strikeout percentage, you do. And so, uh, you know, on that basis, I mean, the, the basis of, Haters being taken number one is the, is the strikeouts, but so why not take the guy who's striking out more? And he walks far fewer. So to me, I mean, it's pretty clear that he's that he's the number one guy. Of course, he's not necessarily the number one guy in terms of saves, but as you know, we have no way of knowing that. So, well, good pitcher, good team. There, there's something right. to like about that, right? Uh, who else do you have in your top tier of closers in that sort of uh, Josh Hader, Liam Hendricks tier? It's so vague now, as far as uh, you know, who has signed and who has not signed. I mean, the only the only guy who's got a real spot that I would put in that class is uh, Rice Iglesias, who whose numbers or underlying numbers are elite. And he's on an, on an improved team, and I think that he's an upper echelon guy. There's a number of guys that could be on that in the number one closer list, but I'm not quite sure where they're gonna where they're gonna land. I mean, I, I would I think Trevor Rosenthal in that class, Kirby Yates possibly in that class, um, not Aroldis Chapman because of his because he's always getting hurt, possibly Edwin Diaz, but it, it's it's hard to say at this time. I, I, I'd, I'd rather answer that question in the middle of March. 
Earlier on, Gene, you made reference to the kind of relief pitchers that you can get at the end of drafts who have a lot of potential to deliver enormous profit, enormous value. And one of the names that popped out in uh, Wise Guy Baseball was J.B. Wendelken in Oakland. It looks ready to step up, maybe all the way to closing, you suggest, but even if he doesn't, there might be a committee, they might give it the role to somebody else, something like that. You say he's still worth watching. What is it about J.B. Wendelken that you like? Uh, he faced 5.3 batters per appearance. This is a good thing to start looking at for for people when they're doing their 2021 20, prep and in, in evaluating the the all the, the the abundance of middle relievers. And the more you pitch, the more chance you get for everything. So on that basis, I mean, I definitely think he's worth a a max bid. Um, in a mono league and definitely worth a relief, uh, reserve pick in mixed leagues. And finally, with the relievers, your analysis of Devin Williams, what a story that was, is a, it's an interesting story. You said that you would bet on him this year to set a historical single season high for strikeout rate, but because he doesn't throw a lot of innings, his actual strikeouts won't be so good and he won't get saves probably in that Milwaukee situation. But after all that, you say you'd go to twenty bucks or close to it. Where's the twenty bucks going to come from? Well, he's so good, and so few. He hasn't been once around the league yet, and I don't think video is going to help hitters with that changeup. And his actual change of pace, the fastball, sits ninety-seven. I mean, he is awesome, and I think that his decimals can be bid to full value. I think it's very rare that you can bet on a that you can bet that an ERA is going to be under two and I go even lower with him and that his whip is going to be point eight or lower. That's very rare and I you could bet it, so I think you should bet it. And I think that's just he'll get a few saves, he'll get a few wins, he'll have awesome strikeouts to compare with a lot of starting pitchers. And so, therefore, I would definitely go to $17, and I would be very tempted to place that if somebody tops that, and don't be surprised if somebody does. I don't think these people are fools at the auction table. and uh, So I think you might have to pay $20, and it might pan out. Uh, and it's a good, fairly good chance that it will pay out, which is pretty unbelievable. The obvious counter-argument, Gene, that we're going to hear, um, I can see it, going through people's heads as they're listening to this is how does a guy even at a .8 whip have that much impact if he's only thrown 60 innings in, in a thousand inning year? Well, you're banking that he's going to throw more than 60 innings, basically. I mean, at 60 innings, it becomes a little bit more drill, but at 80 innings, uh, fine, you know, I'll take that all day. That's a huge impact on your on your overall standing, even those extra 20 innings. It's a uh, you know, it's, you do the math. I mean, it's there. Uh, he's he's going to be worth it, I think. I have done the math, and he is there. You're right, especially at 80 innings. I was doing it at 65, and it, it, there's still an impact that's enough to move you in the category, I believe. But at 80 innings, if he goes 80 innings at .8 whip, boy, oh, boy, uh, there's definitely an impact there. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic. 
And from Wise Guy Baseball and Gene, as you know, I like to ask our experts to talk about the players they think are going to be boons and banes for the fantasy season. Uh, it's your honor as the traditional first show guest to be the first booner and baner of the season. We'll start with your boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners for whatever reason, value, p- pure production, uh, snazzy walk-up song, whatever you like about an American League hitter who could be a boon. Uh, I like Matt Chapman. Um, he's a high strikeout, high fly ball hitter who's been at the bottom of his range. Um, I think he's about ready to hit 280. And nice. Uh, he seems to be coming back. He's supposed to be back in January from his uh, was it was it hip surgery? I'm not sure, but um, he, his ADP is down. He's a nice, comfortable take at third base. Um, so Matt Chapman to hit. Uh, 38 home runs and hit 280. Oh, in the National League, how about a Boone hitter? We talked about him, Jesse Winker. Uh, he's, as I say, I've got him 20 points, 20 places higher than he's going. I, I love his trends. Uh, there's no question in my mind that he's a hitter. So, Jesse Winker. To the mound, uh, an American League pitcher who could be a Boone? I uh, like Jake Odorizzi. Um, he pitched very little last year, but he was but he was sharp. His velocity held up. He's a guy. He's a big student of the game. He's a a self improvement guy. The combination of velocity and control and a good team. Um, his current ADP is two eighty. Um, that's a gift. I would think, seriously consider him at any time after two hundred. Is uh, Jake Odorizzi signed? I I didn't see uh, any news of that. Oh, I thought he was still with the Twins. Am I wrong? I think he's a free agent in 2021, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, then, I, I, I mean, let's see where he signs then. Um, I'm assuming he's going to sign with a good team, and then all that would still apply. If he, if he signs with a bad team, then we'll have to scratch him. And how about a Boone NL pitcher? I like uh, Kwon Young Kim on the Cardinals. Um, finesse pitchers... If they're any good, are always better than their metrics. Um, I like the defense and the, the, the fact that Arenado has come there really helps him there, uh, especially on the left side. He's great defense, ground ball pitcher. Uh, he's got quantity. He's got good control. I think he's a guy who's going to easily outperform his ADP. He did a little uh, relief pitching last year and then uh, did some starting as well. Are you expecting him to be a starter? Yes. Yeah, I don't think the Cardinals have are in a position to to not start him. Gene McCaffrey's Boone's Matt Chapman of Oakland, Jesse Winker of Cincinnati, Jake Odorizzi, late of Minnesota, but now a free agent, and Kwang Yun Kim of St. Louis. Let's move over to the Baines. Gene, these are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious. Let's again start in the American League. Who's a Bane hitter? Won't be on any Gene McCaffrey rosters. Uh, as much as I love him, Salvador Perez. I mean, there have been many years where he's been a profit guy for me, um, but he was playing over his head last year. He's going to be much more expensive this year. Um, so I'm going to take a pass, and we'll talk about him next year. And in the National League, a Bane hitter? Uh, Jake Cronenworth on the Padres. Uh, I do not like how he hit against lefties last year. He, he finished very slowly, although he did pick it up in the playoffs, which is shows that he's a major league hitter. But I mean, the acquisition of Profar and um, how do you pronounce it? Sung Kim. Is okay. that how it's pronounced? I don't know. 
Um, Those two acquisitions strongly suggest that the Padres do not view Cronenworth as a full-time player, and therefore I don't think he should be bid as a full-time player. Got to be watching those transactions for sure. Uh, In the American League, who's a Bain pitcher? Do not like Corey Kluber. Um, He he was ineffective in 2019. Terrace Major, I mean, is kind of shoulder-related. Um, and Yankee Stadium is not a good place to be semi-effective because you're not going to be effective. You're going to allow more home runs. So he's, I've scratched him off pretty much. And in the National League, who's a Bane pitcher? Uh, Mr. Corbin on the Nats. I mean, his his success was based on the strong ground ball strikeout combination. Um, last year, he was neither a ground ball pitcher nor a strikeout pitcher. And furthermore, the Nats had the worst defense in baseball, which took some doing since they played in the same league with the Phillies, who were also abominable. Um, and it looks to me like, if anything, the uh, so what do the Nats do? They go out and get Josh Bell to play first base um, so that he can um, not scoop a couple of more errant throws. Um, I'm staying far away from, from Corbin. Gene McCaffrey's Bain, Salvador Perez of the Royals, Jake Cronenworth of San Diego, Corey Kluber, now of the New York Yankees, Patrick Corbin of Washington. And uh, here's a news update. Jake Odorizzi still a free agent, but is, quote, staying in touch with the Twins, I imagine he is. Uh, Gene, this has been fantastic. Tell us where listeners can read more and keep up with Gene McCaffrey. We're going to be kicking off on The Athletic soon, so please subscribe. Um, I've got a whole lot more Boons and Banes than I just gave you, and I'll be happy to give them to you in The Athletic. I would also say that, you know, I'm not publishing Wise Guy Baseball 2021, but I have written it, so if you want to send me an email at genevm at aol.com, I'm the last person in the world who's still on AOL, send me an email, and I'll send you a Word doc of the file, and you can read it, and I hope you enjoy it, and uh, boy, it's great to be back. And it's a terrific publication. Uh, there's a couple of uh, your usual anecdotes uh, from a life well lived, as the, as the saying goes. Uh, maybe before we go, Gene, uh, tell them the one about uh, Paul Fry. Paul Fry, the uh, pitcher of the Orioles. When I was about eight years old, there was a guy in my town named Paul Fry. He was three or four years older than I was, so I was about eight years old, and they went to the playground and they said, uh, This is Paul Fry. And I said, Paul Fry, the small fry. <laughs> and he punched me in the arm, which I thought was pretty cool, considering you know what he could have done to me, you know, being twelve years old and I was only eight. I met him later on in life a couple of times, and he was—he turned out to be a nice guy when he first saw me. He said, "Oh yeah, you're that wise guy." <laughs> well, he got you right. Is that how I got the name? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I imagine that and other uh, incidents might have all contributed. And now that we got to talking about this. Tell us about the time you won the wet t-shirt contest. <laughs> well, I, I wrote that in the, in the Tommy Pham comment. In the fact that, That's right. In, see, strip joints mostly creep me out. I'm sorry. Uh, they do. Um, but I, when I was about 18, I, me and the boys went to uh, this strip joint in New Rochelle, New York, called Billy Bud's. And it turned out they were having a wet T-shirt contest that night. So there were about, you know, 
30 more girls than there ever are in those bars, you know? I mean, I don't know, on TV, they always show girls in strip joints. Everyone I've ever been in, there's like one girl facing the wall so she doesn't have to watch. But, but in any case, I saw there was a wet T-shirt contest going on, so I said, wait a minute, I'm entering this contest. So I did. I got my T-shirt soaked, and I stripped. And I, I mean, I only went down to my underwear, but I did strip. And I strip with style. And the girls were just hysterical with laughter, I have to say. And I won the strip cheese contest, which was a bottle of champagne, which I did, I'm happy to say, share with everyone there. Oh, geez. Uh, I have no doubt whatsoever that you did it with style because everything you do, you do with style. I have to say that. Gene, thanks very much for joining us uh, at Baseball HQ Radio. It's always a thrill to have you on to open a new podcast season. And of course, you know, you're always welcome back. And thank you so much, Patrick. It's great to hear your voice. It's great to talk to you. And come on, everybody. Let's make up for last year. Gene McCaffrey writes regularly about fantasy baseball for The Athletic. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, February 2nd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number one of our 2021 fantasy baseball season. I do want to thank our guest for this Tuesday Tout Edition, Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic and Wise Guy Baseball. Gene is a great friend of the Baseball HQ Radio podcast and a friend of mine personally as well. He always has a million great stories, a lot of fun, and a lot of fantasy baseball wisdom. I'm Patrick Gabbitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Gabbitt, where among other things you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to wherever you catch your pods and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It helps us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Friday with our first news and comment edition of the season. We'll be introducing a new segment, a spotlight on BaseballHQ.com analysts, starting with speculator columnist Ryan Bloomfield. And of course, we'll have the usual segments, Nick and Ray are back to analyze National League and American League news. We have good news, the return of Rob Gordon with his minor league minute. Great news for you prospect followers. Alex Becky is back with his first frequent flyer comment of the new season. And I'll resume my incoherent ravings in extra innings. All this Friday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, it is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.